Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. I have an exciting announcement. We recently secured a gift of $15,000 to match all donations given by the end of the year. As a fully self-funded project of the Commonwealth Club, we rely on supporters like you to bring this podcast to you every week. To support more climate conversations like this one, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to climateone.org donate. Your gift of any amount will be doubled. Thank you for listening and for your support. Now for this week's pod. Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. On today's show, we revisit conversations earlier this year with two writers who confronted the climate challenge with new books in 2019. I've now written two books on eating animals, and I don't know what I think about the philosophical question at the bottom of it. Jonathan Safran Foer wrote about consuming meat in his 2009 book, Eating Animals. In his most recent work, We Are the Weather, Saving the Planet Begins at Breakfast, he asks how individuals can change their behavior to create new climate-sensitive norms. He'll join us in the second part of today's show, after we peer at a world that's warmed two to four degrees Celsius since the dawn of the industrial era. It is definitely a possibility, scientifically speaking, that large parts of the world could be uninhabitable if climate change continues unchecked beyond this century. That's Catherine Hayhoe, an atmospheric scientist at Texas Tech University, reacting to the title of the 2019 book by David Wallace Wells, The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. David is deputy editor at New York Magazine and our first guest today. Catherine joins the conversation a little later. We start with some of the positive things David sees emerging amidst the climate crisis. In the U.S., we've got the Sunrise Movement leading to the Green New Deal proposals. We have a kind of arms race unfolding among presidential candidates competing to be mm. the most ambitious on climate. Um, from a domestic perspective, I think that was basically unthinkable um, a few years ago. And the same is happening abroad in, you know, in the U.K. with Extinction Rebellion um, and the Parliament declared a climate emergency in England, um, published a report showing how they might get to zero emissions by 2050, which may be a little slower than would be optimal, but is still much, much more ambitious than anything that had been talked about seriously by the government before. And across um, the EU with the Greta Thunberg's climate strike, we're seeing, again, just huge, huge political movement. And I'm a newbie in this area. I've only been writing about it for a few years. But if you had told me just a couple of years ago that um, we'd be where we are now, seeing as much movement and as much progress as we've seen, I wouldn't have believed you. I thought that our politics were inert on this subject. I think they're probably moving too slowly given the state of the crisis, but at the same time, much faster than anybody could have predicted or I think anticipated until quite recently, which is really actually great. It is really exciting. I'm, I'm having, for those of us who've been around a while, I'm an old guy. Um, I'm having a little bit of deja vu from 2007, 2008 mm -hmm. around Al Gore's movie, Copenhagen, the election of Obama. There was a similar kind of feeling of, of, of movement that, that ended in disappointment. Let's see if uh, this one can end differently. I'd like to ask you, how did fear move you out of climate complacency? Well, I've I think the, the question sort of answers itself. I mean, the more I learned about the science, the deeper I got into it, um, which was really kind of over the course of 2016, um, the more scared I was. And that meant the more engaged I was in the urgency of the problem and the crisis. And from where I sat as a journalist, the importance of telling that story so that other people had the same reaction, had the same response. Um, 
the scale of that story remains astonishing and kind of invigorating to me as a storyteller. It's an epic saga. It's the kind of thing that we only used to see in mythology and theology. We really do have the fate of the world and the species in our hands. And each of us who's alive today is a protagonist in that story, making choices, political and otherwise, that are going to determine that future. That's just incredible drama. Um, and so in addition to fear, I was sort of woken up by the sense of the scale of that story. And as a storyteller, the need to share that sense of drama with you know, any reader who would have me, basically. So we, we live in an age of hyperspeed and hyperscale. We're here in, in Silicon Valley, and, and things have happened dramatically. You know, in, in one generation, most people in the world can have in their hands, you know, most of the knowledge accumulated by humankind, you know, in all times. And just think about that. And that's really speed. And we embrace that. Yet that's the speed and scale of climate. Somehow it, that's really hard for us to grasp. Like, well, I think they may be related because um, some of the trajectories of technology have taught us that change can happen very quickly. Um, and that, you know, especially if you have a lot of faith in the technological solutions to climate change, you can think, oh, these things will get figured out. They'll get sorted out down the line. You know, I think that that is, given the state of the crisis, really um, a problematic perspective. You know, the UN says that in order to avoid, safely avoid two degrees of warming, which most of the scientists in the world consider the threshold of catastrophe and island nations of the world call um, genocide, we'll need to have our emissions by 2030, which is basically a decade from now. The Secretary General says we need a global World War II mobilization effort against climate to achieve that, and that needs to start this year. Um, and when you think about all of the components that would go into such a solution, you know, the energy sector is one that we think about a lot. It's probably the easiest because thanks to the progress of renewables, we actually do have a ready-made alternative to our um, dirty energy sources. In much of the world, it's already cheaper than dirty energy, probably will be cheaper in all of the world soon. But some of the other sectors, for instance, infrastructure, industry, um, transportation, these are sectors that take a, quite a long time to rebuild. I mean, if we really want to zero out our emissions from infrastructure, that'll take quite a while. If we really want to zero out our emissions from airplane travel, we need to, first of all, invent a completely new kind of airplane, then build factories to produce them, and then phase them into the fleets of our airlines. That's not something you can do in a year or two years. And so if we really need to achieve all of that in the next 12 years, I think counting on you know, technological progress to solve the problem for us without real political intervention, um, I think is you know, a bit delusional. It means that we're living in a bit of denial or complacency or you know, somewhere in that problematic nexus. Right. So your book is, is heavy duty and you, you write that it's, it's a synthesis and it looks at kind of the, the second half of the bell curve, kind of the, the, the uh, more damaging, perhaps the less probable outcomes. How do you sit with that and, and hold that darkness without getting sucked into it? Because I've seen people like, I would say, you know, Jim Hansen spent so much time looking at dark models that he kind of got, he got pretty dark and, and dour himself. You know, how do you prevent yourself from being consumed by the darkness that you're trying to share with us? Yeah, I mean, part of it is living myself a bit in denial and in complacency and um, in compartmentalization. And I think probably that's going to be a human response to this kind of suffering. You know, if we end up on the track we're on at the end of the century, we could have twice as much war as we have today. We could have agricultural yields that are half as bountiful as the ones that we have today, trying to feed 50% more people. We could have a global GDP that's 30% smaller than it would be without climate change. It's an impact that's twice as deep as the Great Depression. It would be permanent. Um, all of those places in the world would be hit by six climate-driven natural disasters at once. Um, climate refugees in the hundreds of millions, perhaps in the billions, according to the UN. You know, those impacts are horrifying. They can sound and seem paralyzing. But I think we fall into a trap when we think of this story as being beyond our control, something that's unfolding without our input. The only thing that's actually driving it is our input. And um, that leads us to some complicated questions about who we are and what our inputs are and um, who's making these decisions. And um, you know, again, those are really complicated questions. But pulling back and adapting a kind of global perspective, um, if we find ourselves living in a climate dystopia, it will be because of human action. And to me, that's an argument for more action in the other direction now. And ultimately, it's a kind of perversely empowering perspective. 
Christiana Figueres, who was the lead negotiator for the uh, Paris Climate Accord, was here uh, last year, and she says, you know, change begins within. All change begins with self. Uh, and so I'd like to hear your thoughts on that, because that leads to this question of, you know, what can I do? You know, change myself, but then I might say, well, individual change is trivial and perhaps distracting. Yeah, I mean, my feeling is that, you know, people who want to reduce their own carbon footprints should. Um, it's valuable in the sense of advertising to other people that, you can live a fulfilling, prosperous, modern life and still be responsible. It's also helpful in terms of inspiring policy action. But ultimately, the scale of the challenge is just so much bigger than anything we can possibly achieve through individual action. And, you know, you think about diet, which is one portion of the carbon problem. Um, there's a lot of energy these days around people going vegan, eating less red meat for the sake of... Um, reducing carbon emissions. And I think that's valuable. But if we really truly need to get to zero emissions, perhaps as soon as 2050, which is what the UN says, maybe even sooner than that, I just don't think that we'll be able to get there through a global veganism movement. I think that whatever people like you and I do, whatever everyone in this room does, whatever even all Americans do over the next couple of decades, um, the world is a really big place. And I don't think we'll, we're going to be able to compel every single one of the 8 billion people on the planet to give up animal proteins for the sake of climate. I think that means that what we need to do is engineer some policy solutions that could make it possible for us to continue eating in the ways that we would like to without imposing a carbon um, cost on the future. And for me, you know, if everyone we know, if everyone in the entire U.S. vowed to never take a plane again, which is quite unlikely, but even if that happened... There'd be hundreds of millions of people elsewhere in the world who are going to be eager to continue flying. And to me, what that means is that we need, as I said earlier, a completely um, new set of new kind of airplanes with either electric planes or zero flying on zero carbon fuel that requires R&D money, probably such enormous amounts of it that it would have to be public. And it will also require governments to require manufacturers make these kinds of planes rather than the old kinds of planes, and that airlines put them into service quite quickly. I think that at every, in every sector, in every area, the problem is so large and so complicated that we can't hope to address it adequately through individual action, even though individual action can be a kind of useful, motivating, mobilizing way station on the way to policy change. But ultimately, for me, it's all about politics. It has to be. That's how big the problem is. David, one interesting thing about your path is that a lot of people think that a connection to nature is essential, vital to then be aware of it and then want to preserve it. But that's not the case with you. Tell us about your relationship. with. Yeah, people. I mean, I, I, I think uh, the natural world is beautiful. I'm moved by like the David Attenborough documentaries um, and especially the new ones, which have such incredible photography. But, you know, as I said earlier, I'm a lifelong New Yorker. And honestly, I think I'm probably going to be living in cities my whole life. And while I sometimes travel and into places that are um, a little less dense and a little less totally paved over and man-made than New York, I also honestly feel that if I could trade um, the beauty of the natural world for the stability and prosperity and security of future human life, I would actually take that trade. Um, to me, I'm an unusual person on the environmental left in this way because I'm, I'm really primarily and almost um, exclusively concerned about the fate of humans. And I think ecosystem collapse is problematic and worrisome, largely because of how it will impact human life. I think it's also tragic, but I'm not moved by those tragedies in the same way that many others um, who are fighting this fight are. But Unfortunately, we can't continue to live the way that we live or have the expectations for the future that we've had over the last few decades um, unless we quite dramatically change course um, with our carbon. And that to me is um, the most important pressing fact. You know, when I read about 60% of vertebrate mammals have already died since 1970, according to the World Wildlife Foundation, or the huge insect die off that um, entomologists have been documenting over the last few years. Those things concern me primarily because of how they impact human life. Um, and I know that there are others who feel differently, but I think that the, um, the challenge ahead of us is, is so intense 
you know, the word existential gets thrown around a lot, um, and I don't think it's the case that the human species is going to face extinction anytime soon, but the conditions of our existence are going to be so profoundly transformed by these forces that I think we owe it to ourselves to focus on the threat to humans um, as much as we can, rather than being distracted by the plight of, of others. Now, if we really solve the problem, we'll also be securing the lives of all the other species on the planet to the extent that isn't possible. But um, personally, I'm motivated more by the plight of humans and the threat to future human life than I am by you know, the natural world or all those other creatures living in it. You're listening to a Climate One conversation with David Wallace Wells about his 2019 book, The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. Coming up, climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe joins the conversation, plus the ethics of eating meat with author Jonathan Safran Foer. I still find it extremely pleasurable to look at meat and to smell meat, and I desire to eat meat when I see it. I just choose not to. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about living on a hot planet with David Wallace Wells, deputy editor at New York Magazine and author of The Uninhabitable Earth. When this program was recorded back in May, we were joined partway by climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe from Texas Tech University. I began by asking her whether the title of David's book was or wasn't an exaggeration. It is definitely a possibility, scientifically speaking, that large parts of the world could be uninhabitable if climate change continues unchecked beyond this century. But the most important message, I think, is one that David has already highlighted, and that's just the fact that our choices make the world of difference. The planet really is on our hands. And when we look to the future, and my, my own work looks at future projections, the difference between a one and a half, a two degree world, a four degree world, the biggest differences we see are in the choices that we make. And can an individual make choices that are that are meaningful? David has said that, you know, the idea that we're going to recycle our way out of this or all go vegan, is that just kind of delusional or can that have some kind of accumulated impact? I appreciate his honesty because <laughs> so often we are presented with, a, oh, if everybody did X, that would fix the problem. And we know as scientists that that is not true. There is no one silver bullet that will fix this whole problem. And in fact, even if everyone in the United States, in North America, who cared about this, went to a carbon neutral lifestyle, if they could afford to do so, that still wouldn't even make more than a tiny, tiny dent in the overall magnitude of the problem. So that's why when people ask me, what's the most important thing we can do? And they expect me to say, change your light bulbs, recycle or go vegan. I say the most important thing we can do is talk about it. Because public opinion data shows that most of us agree that this is a real problem. It will affect future generations, plants and animals, people in developing countries, but we don't think it matters to us. And so that's why having this conversation is so important because if we don't care, why would we act? Um, and if we don't talk about it, why would we care? And David, you said earlier that, that, that fear really uh, you know, motivated you. My experience is that fear can sometimes turn people away, either paralyze them or turn them away. Have you had people say to you, you're bumming people out. David, just lighten up a little bit because people can't handle how heavy it is. Well, the book grew out of an article that I wrote a few years ago, which was more focused on real worst case scenarios. And I had certainly had some of that response when that article was published. The response to the book, I'd, I'd say, has actually been quite positive, even among scientists who don't take quite as alarmist a perspective in their public um, talking about the issue as I, as I do. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's in part because the conversation has really changed even in these two years since I originally published that article and, and since the book was published. I mean, the real turning point, I think, was this UN report from last October, which looked at the difference between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees, and was not based on new science. You know, anybody who was following it knew everything that was collated in there, but did represent a rhetorical shift in the presentation of that science, and was a much stronger, more clear, and urgent call to arms from scientists than any equivalent body had issued before. And 
in the six months or nine months now since that report was first issued, we've had a kind of unprecedented mobilization. Um, I think that the science is really alarming. You don't need to um, misrepresent it to scare people. But the responsible response to scary science is to um, try to take action, especially because I do think that we, as Catherine said, as I said earlier, we are the authors of this story. We can write it differently. And so I think that it's important to always keep that in mind and always you know, not want to foreclose any possibility or say that anything is inevitable. But at the same time, we know from the history of environmental advocacy that fear can motivate people. We know that from our recent politics. And, you know, the UN called for a World War II-style mobilization. We know from the history of World War II that um, fear and alarm can produce a really mighty response, which is unfortunately what we need um, for climate right now. The difference, though, with this and uh, World War II, Catherine Hayhoe, is we are all complicit. There's no, I mean, if North Korea was causing climate change, we would mobilize and go after it. But uh, it's more diffuse, you know, and we're, we're conflicted and complicit in this case. So your thought of is often, rightly so, as a very optimistic scientific communicator. How do you deal with that fear, but, t- but keep it real and so you don't bum people out? Well, as a scientist, I know exactly what David's talking about because every new scientific study that comes out shows that climate is changing faster to a greater extent than we thought almost. I mean, whether it's the fact that sea level is rising faster, glaciers are melting faster, um, the new round of global climate models we use have higher sensitivity showing greater change by the end of the century. That's one of our latest results. It just isn't good news. Um, And so the way I look at it is what we need for the future is rational hope. Maybe David would would rephrase that as rational fear. Uh, But but we need need our emotions that are informed by an awareness of how serious the problem is, because it is profoundly serious. It's not about saving the planet. The planet itself will survive. It's about every living thing on this planet, including ourselves. Uh, But balancing that with what we can do about it, because just telling people how scary something is without directly informing us of the role that our choices play in whether that future rolls out or not, and what we can do both individually and collectively, I think is the key. So Al Gore's first film, An Inconvenient Truth, was criticized for kind of, you know, uh, informing and alarming, but not giving people enough of a handle for solutions. Catherine Hayhoe, do you think that an uninhabitable Earth should have had more of a ramp for more of the solutions part, kind of like Al Gore's first film? Well, so Al Gore's second film and his second book did exactly that. It got directly into solutions. So I'd like to see this, the second book in David's series yeah. <laughs> uh, talk more perhaps about, <laughs> about, about what is already happening around the world. But then we also need, and more importantly now, we need a positive vision of the future. Because if we don't have that positive vision of the future, we have no goal to aim towards. World War II, they absolutely had a positive vision of the future, you know, a free world that was not ruled by the Nazis. And so we're missing that positive vision and we need our creative talents to give that to us. We scientists are terrible at positive visions of the future. All we're good at is diagnosing the problem in greater and greater detail. We need others to help us see what that future looks like. Because when you look at something that's better than what we have today, you can't hold people back from moving in that direction. That's what we're missing here is how the future could be better than today. David, your thoughts, your next book, going to go, go light. To, uh... <laughs> well, I mean, I think that there, you know, I would, I think that um, we knew we do need that vision. And I think that we don't yet have a collectively have a clear picture of it. I totally agree. I do think that some of the storytelling coming out of the Green New Deal advocacy has done some of that. I think that Paul Hawken has done um, some of that. Um, and in general, I'm just excited by the plethora of different people taking different approaches to this problem right now. I mean, in addition to the political movement that we're seeing, we're also just seeing a lot more storytelling about it than we did a few years ago. And I think, you know, whereas 10 years ago, you could say about to Al Gore, you didn't do enough X. Now there are so many people telling stories that it's not really on one person or one message um, to deliver every aspect of the story. But beyond all that, beyond the storytelling, I would say, we have basically the tools that we need now. What we lack is the political will to put them into place. Now, in a certain way, that's a little bit of a misleading or cop-out statement because we have the tools we need to end a lot of problems in this world, global poverty and the you know, injustices enacted against women and you know, ethnic cleanse. I mean, there are many, many problems in the world that theoretically we have the tools to address and we don't deploy them. But climate change is another one of those issues Energy is probably the the most obvious one because 
in relatively short order, renewables will be cheaper in all of the world than they are than dirty energy. But in a lot of other sectors too, um, we can see what needs to be done. We just need to rally people to do it. I think the, having a positive vision is part of that rallying cry, but it's actually less of an imaginative leap than it might have been even a decade ago. When an inconvenient truth came out, for instance, you know, renewables simply were not competitive market-wise with dirty energy, and that's totally different than um, now than it was 10 years ago. So we're already living in a world that the path that we need to take may be a little clearer than it was just a few years ago, um, although I agree with Catherine wholeheartedly that we need more people saying that <laughs> so that people understand that we can make a fulfilling, prosperous future for ourselves. You know, we have those tools now. We just need to make it happen. David Wallace-Wells, deputy editor at New York Magazine and author of The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. We also heard from Texas Tech University climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe, both recorded at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco earlier this year. You're listening to Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Living in a hotter world means changing social norms and systems at scale, especially our food and agricultural systems. It's a tricky thing to engage the public in a conversation that is inconvenient, you know, as Gore put it. Having to say no to certain foods that have been so important to us is extremely inconvenient. In his most recent book, We Are the Weather, Saving the Planet Begins at Breakfast, author Jonathan Safran Foer explains how individual food choices can change those norms and systems. Jonathan joined us at Climate One earlier this year, along with Helene York, head of social and environmental responsibility at ISS Guckenheimer, a company that manages cafes on corporate campuses around the country. I began by asking Jonathan why it takes him until page 64 to confess that his book is about the impact of animal agriculture on the environment. I had read a lot of books about climate change before I even contemplated writing my own. I was, mm -hmm. I guess, what you might call a concerned citizen, you know, a concerned father. And over the last couple of years, I heard myself saying more and more often, wow, somebody really has to do something. Somebody has to do something. Can you believe this? Look at these images of the Amazon burning. Look at these superstorms, you know, these 500-year storms that are now annual events. Somebody has to do something. Hmm. And I thought about my reactions to those images and to those books and the ways in which they made me alarmed, they made me angry, they made me depressed, they made me motivated um, until I wasn't looking at them anymore. Mm. At which point I just went back to my life. Mm. You know? With many of these books, I would read a paragraph or two paragraphs or 10 pages and say, everyone on planet Earth has to read this. And then by page 20, I wasn't reading it anymore. <laughs> because, not because they weren't wonderfully written. These are great books by smart people and, and wonderful writers. But something wasn't sticking to mm. me. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to give thought to what would stick. And, um, well, a balance of what would stick and then what has to stick. You know, we know uncontroversially that there are four choices we make as individuals that matter considerably more than any others, which are flying less, driving less, having fewer children, and eating fewer animal products. And um, it's a difficult thing to talk about because most obviously it's a pleasure, you know, for most people. I'm a vegetarian. I have been since I was a kid. I still find it extremely pleasurable to look at meat and to smell meat. And I desire to eat meat when I see it. Mm. I just choose not to, but not because I find it repulsive and not because it's easy. I also have some of my happiest memories involve meat. You know, the chicken my grandmother would make for me when I was a little kid, my dad grilling in our backyard, or my mom bringing um, locks home on a special weekend morning. So it's one thing to know that there's a cause and effect relationship between what you choose to eat and what will happen in the world, especially when it's scaled. Um, and it's another thing to have to bring that into a kind of engagement with our psychologies and our cravings. And there's a reason why Al Gore has never really talked about meat. He's starting to more now. Um, it's not because we're only now learning about it. It's because it's a tricky thing to engage the public in a conversation that is inconvenient, you know, as Gore put it. And 
having to say no to certain foods that have been so important to us is extremely inconvenient. So I wanted to get as far in as I could and pick up as much momentum as I could before really engaging in the, in the most necessary material. Helene York, you read a lot of food books. It's partly of your job to do that. How is this one different? Um, for me, this book does depart from all of the books that I have had the opportunity to read. And mind you, I read them for facts. I read them to try to find metaphors. I read them to try to teach chefs why they should make different choices on their menus, uh, to make lower carbon choices. Um, and this one is stunning. Let me just use that as a word. It's, it's really a call to almost a spiritual action. And I don't consider myself a religious person, but uh, there were times when I was moved to tears. It was so personal for you, and it felt personal for me. I'm a parent, I'm not a grandparent, but I think if you were in either of those categories, you would find a connection. Um, and I thought the analogy to, um, the, well, the story of how individuals tried really hard to persuade and got audiences with um, influential people um, said this is what's happening in 1943. Um, this is the Holocaust. I mean, I don't think it was the word at the time, but this is what's happening in the Warsaw ghettos. And people heard those stories, couldn't fundamentally believe it emotionally, and didn't do anything about it. And I, I thought the parallel was um, haunting, um, but it, it, it did what the other books haven't done. It's, it's emotional. And I think I was finding, even though, you know, I'm somebody who walks to public transportation, curses sweating along the way, and, you know, and I'm a vegetarian for, until dinner, and then I'm a pescatarian sometimes, but I don't eat meat, and, you know, I've, I've committed my professional life to this. I found, reading this book, that there were other things I could potentially commit to, and so I began trying them on for size, and that doesn't typically happen, and I think that's, there's a lot of power in this book. I'm so moved to hear that, and you know, I had the most amazing experience about two weeks ago. I did a reading, and there was a signing line afterwards, and a young couple uh, came up, and they put their book in front of me and opened to what would normally be the um, title page, or was the title page, it would normally be empty, and it was filled with their handwriting, and I said, what's this? And they said, we're getting married in a couple of months. And we decided that we really need to have a plan. Because if we don't have a plan, we're just going to do what we've always done. And their plan was eat vegetarian unless served meat at a friend's house. Eat vegan two days a week. Have no more than two children. And drive no more than a thousand miles a year. And instead of asking me to just sign it, they had written a line that said witness and wanted me to sign that. <laughs> and um, I was really moved by their plan. I was really moved by the particularness of their plan. Mm -hmm. You know, like, what? Oh, it's so interesting. Eat vegetarian except when you're at a friend's house. Yeah, that makes sense to me. It's maybe not what I would do, but what a great idea. That's a really cool way to approach the problem. A thousand miles a year. Could I do that? A thousand miles a year? I'm not so sure. Eating vegan two days a week. You know, one could look at that and say, hey, if it's wrong, it's wrong. Like if the answer is that we got to eat less, just go all the way. You know, you could measure the five days of hypocrisy or you could measure the two days of accomplishment. And I think we've gotten so used to measuring the hypocrisies and the distances from a perfection that's not only unattainable, it's also unnecessary. You know, we do not, as a species, have to stop flying, stop eating animal products, stop having babies. We just have to do these things with a lot of moderation. We have to do them a lot less than we're doing them now. And when I saw their plan, it occurred to me, having written this book, which took me, I don't know, two years to write, and I, having thought about this issue, having opined at 
dinner parties, having made posters for marches, that I didn't have a plan. I could not say to anybody, I could not say to my kids, this is what I'm going to do. And instead, I have been doing what I imagine most of you do, which is you say, I'm going to try to fly less in the coming year. I'm going to try to eat less meat in the coming year. But that doesn't really translate into behavior, at least not in my experience. I think we're so used to thinking about like, the shame of not acting that we forget the joy of acting and how good it can feel and what a relief it can feel to close the distance between what you know you should do, not because someone else is telling you, but because you're telling you, because of your own inner compass. I know I should be participating in this way, and yet we witness ourselves not participating in those ways. And just to close the distance, even by increments, provide its own kind of joy. You're listening to a Climate One conversation with author Jonathan Safran Foer and food expert Helene York. Coming up, the good, the bad, and the ugly of eating meat. I just cannot live with the idea that beef should be an everyday food, even for people who eat it. These have to become treats. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about climate-friendly eating with Jonathan Safran Foer, author of We Are the Weather, Saving the Planet Starts at Breakfast, and Helene York, head of social and environmental responsibility at ISS Guckenheimer. Jonathan's work has made him a prominent vegan, but does he in fact think that eating meat is immoral? I'm not so sure I would say that, actually. I've now written two books that are focused on eating animals, and I don't know what I think about the philosophical question at the bottom of it. Um, you know, I've been to farms, the, Neiman, the original Neiman Ranch in Bolinas, and I thought, you know, it's, it's not a bad setup they've got here. And if I were to imagine myself into a cow's position, and you know, maybe this is a kind of unnecessary <laughs> or stupid hypothetical, but you know, it's, it's not, if, it's, if you think of it as a deal, like this is what the cow gets in exchange for what the cow has to give. But the reality is we live in the world of 7 billion people. And it's not an abstract question of whether it's right or wrong to eat animals. It's a question, it's a very practical question of the production methods that are available and that are necessary if this many people are going to eat this amount of meat and dairy. The amount of um, animal products that we consume now are the equivalent of every citizen in the world in the year 1700, eating 900 pounds of meat and drinking 1,200 gallons of milk every day. So some of that is because of our changing diets, and obviously a lot of that is because of our expanding population. But whatever the explanations, it is where we are. This is the reality. And, you know, is, are there you know, ways of farming beef that are better than others? Obviously. Would it be wonderful if we could transition away from, you know, factory farms to the kinds of farms that existed 80 years ago? I would be the first person to support that. But that will also require eating dramatically less of these products than we do now. And the other part there, Helene York, is that the kind of practices, this kind of boutique grass-fed uh, that happens in uh, elite coastal areas, uh, there's problems with scaling that because of the, of the land needed, because of the organic practices. Tell us that you know, organic is not quite all that it's sometimes cracked up to be. I think that there is a, a real dramatic difference between um, what you can do on a small scale and what you can do on a large scale. And that's true whether you're talking about fruits, vegetables, meat, um, or, uh, you know, grain crops, cereal crops. Um, and when you think about the history of how we got so few uh, cereal crops, why do we have one kind of wheat, for instance, that is uh, predominant? Uh, why do we have one kind of bean? Uh, you know, a pinto bean is just much more prevalent than all the other beans combined. And there's, we've lost flavor, and we really have lost a lot of flavor. But, you know, yields matter. Um, and if you practice farming in particular ways in an environment now where we have to really conserve the land, 
um, for many different kinds of uses, and we have to house so many more people, um, and we have to move them around. Um, yield is one of those factors we have to consider. And, um, you know, just like beef and the production systems, the same is true with fruits and vegetables, um, organic versus non-organic. I mean, I have given long lists of organic pesticides to chefs and in, in a class that I do, and I said, do you want to serve these pesticides to your guests? And they're like, no, no. And then I say, Okay, these are all approved on the National Organic Standards Board's list of pesticides. And they look at me like, what do you mean pesticides? I'm like, yes, pesticides in organic farming. They absolutely do exist. And some of them are, because they are not as intense, have to be used more frequently. Now, that typically doesn't happen on smaller farms. It happens on larger farms, so there's the issue with scaling. And 75% of the organic produce that is available in the United States these days um, is uh, from really large-scale farms. Um, in fact, uh, talk about the books, you know, the many books on my shelf, Organic Inc. Uh, it, was, it was early 2000s, and it's been an issue that has really accelerated rather than uh, gone back in the other direction. It's complicated. Uh, Plant-based meat is quite uh, a trend these days. Beyond Meat went public earlier this year. Shares are up 500% since their IPO. Their, uh, Beyond Meat is now available in Albertsons, Safeway, A&W, Carl's Jr., and Tim Hortons. Really getting to the middle of America. Impossible Foods, a private company, has a similar uh, plant-based burger and other meat products uh, available in Applebee's, Cheesecake Factory, Burger King. Jonathan, what do you think about this trend? For the first time, people, meat lovers, have something of a viable alternative. Well, one in three Americans eats a meal a day at a fast food restaurant. If plant-based meats replaced, I mean, it'd be great if we could replace fast food, period. But that's not going to happen too quickly. And in the meantime, if we replaced fast food meat, that would be a really, really wonderful way to begin to reduce meat consumption. And I think it's a very easy way to, because an Impossible Burger is not so different from a Burger King burger, except that it requires 99% less water, 93% less land, and emits 90% fewer greenhouse gas emissions. Um, I think the argument about whether or not it's considerably healthier kind of misses the point. Um, the point is, um, in this moment of climate crisis, this is a, a really easy way to begin to make a difference. One thing that I've liked quite a bit about how they've been rolling out these products is um, they're not selling them as food for vegetarians. They're right. selling them as food for people who eat meat who want to eat less, and that's been shown out um, in the, in the buying habits, 90% of people who buy um, Beyond Meat in a supermarket also buy meat in the same period of time that they were conducting this. Uh, when KFC released their um, vegetarian plant-based chicken, what a, what a weird thing to say, isn't it? Plant-based chicken. <laughs> they had pictures in the New York Times of people lined up around the block, and I thought, eh, it's just a bunch of vegetarians. It didn't really excite me that much. But they painted, painted KFC painted the restaurant green that day, which I thought was pretty cool. They're not just making a little substitute for vegetarians to get them off their backs, but their statement was what impressed me the most, which was they said, we don't think of this as a food for vegetarians. We think of it as a food for people who eat meat and are going to eat meat, but want to eat less. And if we could move away from the binary of vegetarian or meat eater, and to, I mean, you even had discomfort when you said, well, pescatarians, these words trip us up. Yeah. You know, they make us stutter, both literally and also emotionally. And if instead we could move toward just this recognition, we have to do a lot less of this thing. Like if you were to ask me in 10 years, will half of Americans be vegetarian? I would say I think that's pretty unlikely. If you were to say in 10 years, will half of the meals eaten in Amer America be vegetarian? I would say I, I feel that that will happen. It's the same outcome, you know? with regards to the environment, with regards to animal welfare. But it's a totally different, it's a perspectival shift away from claiming an identity to 
claiming the choices that are in front of you. Yeah, and that identity and that purity is often an, an obstacle for people thinking, if I can't be perfect, I won't start, so they just, I'll just stay where I am. It's a real obstacle because that's the real barrier. Um, Helene York, uh, Yahoo, uh, I read on Yahoo that Bank America Merrill Lynch uh, did a survey of people who are buying these plant-based meat. 35% are opting for plant-based protein for health reasons. 30% for environmental reasons. When you're thinking about you serve thousands of people in corporate cafes around the country, is it health first and environment second? How do you, how do you balance those? It's deliciousness. It, seriously, and it's how it's described. Because if it is described um, with toppings that are just really, really appealing to consumers and it's highest on the menu, people will order it. If it's described as a healthy option on a menu, people will say, oh, this restaurant has healthy food. Great. I'll order the cheeseburger. <laughs> so it's really about, does this appeal to me in the moment when I'm making the decision for what I'm going to eat for lunch? So you don't lead with virtue. No, although I think that the virtue um, has gotten supermarket sales going. Um, I think the curiosity has gotten the um, fast food sales going. And, and I think that has everything to do with the fact, of, with social media. Because you've got young people who think of food as an experience, and they think of it as uh, entertainment, really. And, so, and they want to share that enthusiasm. And so they're willing to try new things and take pictures of it and share it with everybody. And I think that trying new things has really accelerated the change because people want to try more things. Jonathan, you have a chapter in your book, Dispute with Soul. And part of this says, um, have you noticed how often conversations about climate change end with the question of hopelessness? Maybe that's the self. And the soul says, have you noticed how often conversations about climate change end? That's because we're hopeful and we're comfortable putting off the discussion. So tell us about that chapter and how what that represents this own conversation or conflict within yourself about your climate consciousness and responsibility. Well, it's something that I had noticed, you know, listening to other people talk about climate change, um, that the conversations inevitably begin or end or both with the subject of hope. And um, I think that when people feel vulnerable, they tend to move toward extremes. You know, the extremes can be binaries, like I have to do everything or I do nothing, or extremes even in terms of understanding climate change. You know, some very smart people are doomsday-ish in a way that um, mm. isn't in keeping with the science. Um, there are these modes that we can kind of fall into if we're not vigilant. I find myself falling into them. I don't think I would ever say either of these two things aloud, but I, um, I know that they are psychological resting places for me, which are, we are doomed or we're going to be okay, you know? And the truth is we're not doomed and we're not going to be okay. We're at the beginning or near the beginning of a process of loss. And we will determine the amount of loss. Some of the loss has already been set in motion and can't be undone. Most of it hasn't. So when I say or when I feel we are doomed or we're going to be okay, I'm first of all excusing myself from the much more complicated mix of emotions that a real engagement with climate change would inspire, like anger, sadness, guilt, resolve, hope, despondency, um, sometimes coexisting. And I'm also excusing myself from participation. You know, like people who say we are doomed and people who say we're gonna be okay really aren't including themselves in the we that they're mm -hmm. speaking about. Mm. Um, so I feel cautious about the conversation ending with hope, um, ending with emotion rather than action. It's very easy to confuse emotion with action. And a lot of people will say, we, we don't have time for talk, we need action, and they jump right into action thinking that any action is better than no action, and that may be misguided action or not thoughtful action, but people, I think some climate people are, are so uncomfortable with that emotion, they just get moving thinking that any action is, is constructive. I think it's, you know, our, cli like climate change itself, the solution to climate change, both 
collectively and individually will be a process. It's not an event. We're not going to save the planet or not save the planet. No, there's a range of outcomes that's responsive to a range of choices. And um, we are not going to choose all or nothing, and we are not going to end up with all or nothing. You know, the book ends with, um, the book begins by describing the first, the oldest known suicide note. It was written 4,000 years ago in ancient Egypt. And um, the book ends with it as well, with this notion of each of us arguing with ourselves. And that's sort of my personal conclusion, is that I'm not going to decide to be an environmentalist and be an environmentalist, whatever that even means. Um, It's not going to be an identity that I have, and it's not going to be a choice that I make. It's going to be an argument that I have with myself over and over and over. An argument to stay vigilant and not become lazy. Um, So it really is important, I think, to come back to these basic truths. That it is less expensive to eat less meat. It is healthier to eat less meat. And it's better for the environment to eat less meat, not to mention animal welfare. There, may, there are plenty of arguments against the world going vegan, but that's not what we're talking about. Um, but the argument against really reducing the amount of animal products that we eat and a movement away from industrialized animal uh, agriculture, there, there isn't a cogent argument to be made in response. And the meat industry does not want to talk about this. They just don't want to talk about it because they know that the values that would lead somebody to eat less meat are not liberal values. They're not conservative values. They're not religious values, or they're not exclusively any of these things, or secular values, or old, or young. They're just fundamental human values. You know? These are issues that we all agree on. We just haven't had sufficient information. We haven't been aware of when we're making the choices or the opportunity to make better choices. You've been listening to a Climate One conversation about sustainable eating with Jonathan Safran Foer, author of We Are the Weather, Saving the Planet Begins at Breakfast, and Helene York, Head of Social and Environmental Responsibility at ISS Guckenheimer. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org or wherever you get your pods. Also, I'd like to share some exciting news. Climate One has been nominated for Best Green Podcast at the iHeartRadio Podcast Awards presented in Los Angeles in January. We want to thank you and iHeartRadio. Please keep writing those reviews. They really do help. Quick reminder that as a nonprofit, we rely on the generosity of individuals like you to produce these podcasts every week. We hope you'll consider making a tax-deductible donation to support Climate One, which will be matched up to $15,000. Go to climateone.org donate and thank you. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Arnav Gupta. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>